Did it again. Welcome to Mercy Fellowship, where we are saved by Jesus' work. We are changed by Jesus' grace, and we are living on Jesus' mission. My name is Chris. I'm the lead pastor here, uh, and I'm just excited to get to be gathering with you guys. Today, I got to spend this last week in a beautiful seaside, Oregon. And I say that my expectations were gray and dreary, and seaside did not disappoint. Um, so if you're just thinking like a depressing seaside town in the middle of winter, that's what it was. Was. But what was great about it was getting to gather with ministry leaders and pastors from all over Oregon, Idaho, Washington, and even a good friend of ours uh, from Alaska, Caleb Richardson and his brother Josh. And so I wanted you to know that Mercy Fellowship, we're part of uh, Acts 29, which is a great church planning organization with um, 36 churches in the Northwest, 700 churches across uh, the world. But we're also part of Church Venture, which is a historically Baptist organization that has about 240 churches in the Northwest and 900 churches across uh, the country. And so really great to get to be with those guys. And, and part of why it was awesome to get to, to connect and be present uh, was because we have today with us a special guest. This is Dr. Paul Dean. Um, he is going to be preaching for us today, which allowed me this last week to be present and not just be thinking about preaching. But um, Paul, you've been here in the Puget Sound for what, the last 20 years or so, right? Yeah. So Paul and I have been good friends for the last uh, 10 years. Um, we have worked together um, in the Seattle area pastors uh, network. Um, and Paul uh, is just one of those leaders um, that does more than anybody else in the Puget Sound I know to help churches be reminded of the fact that there's not dozens and dozens of churches here in the Northwest, but there's one church. There's Jesus Church. Uh, and so Paul has been a huge blessing to me and Tara. He's been a huge blessing to our church. Um, he serves uh, on our advisory board. So we have our local elders, myself and Curtis and Al, but then we have a couple pastors as well that help us as kind of a, an advisory team. And Paul's been a huge part of that. And then um, as well, and I will let him speak in a minute. I just don't get to preach. This is all I get today. Um, is that, you know, in 2017, um, Tara and I got to go to uh, London, England. And it was a really cool opportunity to get to be there. Uh, and um, we went to Buckingham Palace, like a lot of people do. And there's those soldiers, right, in front of Buckingham Palace, right? And, and everyone's like, Chris, you know, you're sometimes a funny guy. Have you ever thought about trying to get one of those soldiers to laugh? And I said, no, because I've made Paul Dean laugh. So I don't need to make one of those soldiers laugh. And so Paul's got a dry sense of humor. We're glad that he's here. He's incredibly brilliant. He is the smartest man to come out of Pullman, Washington ever. Uh, and so really glad that you're with us, uh, Paul. Um, can I pray for you? Yes. Awesome. All right, Father God, I just thank you so much for who you are. I thank you uh, just for Paul's ministry at Soma Eastside and Issaquah, uh, Lord, for the decades that he's invested into your church here in the Puget Sound. Lord, we're excited for the way you're using Paul through the Soma network uh, of churches to help uh, encourage um, missional church plants uh, and churches uh, across not just the, the region and country, but across the world. Um, and Lord Mercy Fellowship, we're just so blessed to have so many churches that love us and know us and pray for us. Um, Lord, we're thankful for Paul to be serving us here today. Um, God, you're good to us and you're good for us. In Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you guys give Paul a welcome here to Mercy Fellowship this morning? Awesome. Thanks, Thank man. Thank you. If you haven't heard me speak before, you will note that I have uh, considerably less energy than your uh, senior pastor. But uh, I was, as Chris noted, I was born in Pullman, Washington. My mother was Miss Pullman in 1966. My dad taught at the university, and uh, so I just thoroughly a coog. Anybody tracking with me? Okay, I, I see those hands. Fantastic. Yeah. Well, Pullman is uh, is a dear spot, and uh, if you're if you're a fellow coog, uh, that's great. If not, you can just kind of feel sorry for us. We uh, were the scrappy younger brother in the state, and every once in a while we, we win the Apple Cup, and that's super excited. But most of the time we just settle for uh, just lower expectations. And that's, that's the key to happiness regardless, whether you're watching football or listening to me preach. But today we're gonna talk about revival, and I'm glad you sort of get my humor. I am from, you know, I did grow up on the dry side of the state, and that affects uh, how, I, how I talk and how I relate. So. But we're going to talk about revival today. If you have your Bibles with you, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. If you don't, uh, it'll be on the screen. And the title that I'm working with today is Revival's Call. 
and specifically how the Spirit calls Christians to listen and obey. So 1 Thessalonians, written by the Apostle Paul to the church in Thessalonica, he says in verse 12 of chapter 5, We ask you, brothers, to respect those who labor among you and are over you in the Lord and admonish you, and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Be at peace among yourselves. And we urge you, brothers, admonish the idle, encourage the faint-hearted, help the weak, be patient with them all. See that no one repays anyone evil for evil, but always seek to do good to one another and to everyone. Rejoice always, pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Do not quench the spirit. Do not despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. So according to uh, the best research I've seen, one-third of millennials and one-third or more of Generation Z is turning away from the faith. And the question that I hear over and over and over is what is the church to do? And uh, in years past, the, uh, the answer was, has been pray. The answer has been preach. The answer has been think outward and pursue people like God pursues people. But the answer might be uh, more simple than that. It might be as simple as listening to and obeying the Holy Spirit. So this article that I'm going to read part of was in a major international magazine and and came out really earlier this month. And this is how the article starts. It says, the revival began at a chapel service on February 8th. Now, revival's not a biblical word. It is a little bit of a difficult thing to describe or to define. I mean, do you know that you're in a revival when you're in a revival? Or is it like many things, just years later, you you point back and say, oh, that was... That was a personal revival. That was a, that was a church revival. That was a regional revival. Or that was a national revival. But similar to a fish not being aware that's, that, it, that it is in water, sometimes it's hard for us to understand something in the middle of it. But uh, revivals have been noted throughout church history, particularly post-Reformation. And maybe it's just because of... Uh, this isn't something that that the Catholic Church paid a ton of attention to uh, from 2nd century to 15th century. I think if you look carefully, you can see it, but you see it happening again and again and again post-Reformation. And in the United States, where we reside, there's also a, there seems to be a, a pattern of sorts of revivals. And sometimes those seem very sincere and full of devotion and beauty, and sometimes they seem, well, manipulated and emotional and short-lived. But the revival began at a chapel service on February 8th. Zach, and forgive me, Zach, Mercreebs, Zach Mercreebs appeared to have lit this flame from a human perspective, and he is the assistant soccer coach at Asbury University. He's also the leadership development coordinator for the mission organization Envision. And it was his day to preach chapel. 
And he preached that day on Romans 12 about becoming love in action. And as he began, McCreeves told the students who are required to attend three chapels per week, uh, which is actually kind of soft for where I come from, Chris Rich. Um, I went to, my undergrad was at Cedarville University in Ohio, and we were five days a week. And uh, so this is a little bit of a, uh, I guess, lower class Christian college. But three days a week, they're required, and he says, he says, everybody, I'm not here to entertain you today. Matter of fact, he said to the students, I don't want you to focus on me at all. And I quote, I hope you guys forget about me, and I hope you forget about anything today other than the Holy Spirit, and my hope is that God's word would find fertile ground in your hearts and produce fruit. He said, what we're looking for today is for God's word and Jesus and the Holy Spirit moving in our midst. And then Merkrebs also talked to them about the experience of God's love in contrast to the radically poor love that is narcissistic, abusive, manipulative, and selfish. And as he looked out at the, at the group of students, he said, some of you have experienced that kind of love in the church. And maybe it's not violent, maybe it's not molestation, maybe it's not being taken advantage of, but it feels like someone has pulled a fast one on you. Because God's love is complete. It is perfect. He finished his sermon and no one came forward at the end of the service. And he experienced a very common preacher experience. He felt like he had whiffed. His words. He actually texted his wife. He said, latest stinker. I'll be home soon. And if I can just let you in just behind the curtain a little bit, that is the common experience for post-sermon feelings. Can I get an amen? Amen. Not saying you're a bad preacher, brother, uh, but, but I often, you know, people, people ask me how I th- thought the sermon went, and I'll say, it was terrible, and then I will follow up with, my hope is that every third sermon is pretty good, because that is enough for people to have hope when they come in the door this morning, they're thinking, maybe this is the third week. After McCreeb finished his sermon, a black gospel trio sang a final song and chapel ended. But curiously, 18 or 19 students stayed. They sat in several clusters, a few along the right wall, a few in their seats, a few on the floor, a few at the foot of the stage. They just kept praying. Zeke Atha, a junior, told a documentarian a few days later, that he was one of, the, one of the ones who remained in the chapel, but he left after an hour to go to a class. But when he got out of the class, as he went out into the main courtyard area, he heard singing coming from the chapel. He said, well, that's weird. He went back up, and it was surreal. He said he walks in the door, and the peace that was in the room was unexplainable. He and a few friends immediately left, sprinted around campus, bursting into classrooms with an announcement. Revival is happening. Two hundred years previously, uh, Jonathan Edwards wrote this about his 18th century Puritan town. So I'm going to jump back and forth. Dischronologically, which means I'm not going to go in chronological er uh, order. I'm just going to jump around telling story after story today. Hope that's okay. Normally I do a lot more um, exposition, but, but to me this passage is beautifully explained by story. So here's Jonathan Edwards, 18th century. If you don't know who Jonathan Edwards is, he was a preacher that would stare at his notes, talk in monotone, about the most horrific things uh, you could possibly imagine. 
If you, if you grew up in the public school system in the 80s, uh, they would actually have you read his sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. But here is his description talking about 18th century Puritan colonial America. And I don't know what your idea about that is. Some of you have this idea uh, that history is a long, long slide towards evil. And so the further back you go, especially in American history, the more holy it is. That is incorrect. American history, as far as religion, is like a pendulum that swings back and forth and back and forth. As people follow Jesus and respond to him and see societal transformation, and then a couple generations later, the the children or the grandchildren of those people forget what utter chaos and madness it was when people didn't follow God, and so they drift away until things get bad enough and dire enough, um, and the Holy Spirit then shows mercy on them and and builds them up again, uh, opens their ears again, and they often uh, repent, and you see great societal upheaval. But here we are, 18th century, Puritan town, New England, and Jonathan Edwards describes them as insensible to things of religion. Insensible. They do not understand it at all. They see no value in it, and they are like Generation Z or millennials today. They are just largely walking away from the church. They didn't have surveys then, but if they had surveys then, I think Jonathan Edwards would have concluded that most of them would just check none when asked what their religious affiliation was. They were addicted to night walking. Not going to go into that, just think a bunch of teens and early 20s walking around at night getting into trouble, including uh, paying for things that they shouldn't be paying for. They were frequenting the tavern. They were into lewd practices. They were into, these are Edward's words, frolicking, mirth, and jollity. Sorry for speaking in such words. I know there are children in the room. (laughs) They don't care about God. They're all about pursuit of pleasure. And they are disobedient to their parents. In 1733, though, he says, this magnificent thing happened. All of a sudden, children started responding positively to their parents. They were back in church services, and their behavior had radically changed. What happened? Well, he said there was a sudden and awful death in town of a particular young man. Sudden sickness Um, just awful end and everyone remembered that life is short. And then there was a young married woman who also was struck by a deadly illness but instead of facing it with despair she faced it with such calm and everyone that came in to visit her as she slowly slides uh, towards the end of her time on earth was amazed at how she would continually talk about the love of God and the mercy of God. And then he said there was a group that came in town that was trying to convince everyone in town that they could earn their salvation through good works, and that theological error was abruptly corrected, not just by the pastors and the shepherds and the ministers in town, but by ordinary Christians. And in the midst of this, awareness of death, awareness of truth, There was conversion after conversion after conversion. And Edwards looked at all this and he thought, he said, it just happened so fast, I thought this was just an emotional response to the gospel, an emotional response to just this awareness of the immediacy and the inevitability of death. But he said, over time I saw the whole town awakened. I saw a whole town suddenly concerned with eternity and faith. And so much so that that 
faith became, became the talk of the town. You couldn't go into a tavern without hearing about Jesus. You couldn't go to the marketplace without hearing about Jesus. You couldn't go anywhere out in the fields where people were gathered without someone talking about Jesus. He said by 1735, the whole town was full of the presence of God. There was sacrificial love. There were converts. There were new churches. There was loud singing. And there were skeptic after skeptic after skeptic won over by the love of God and the love of God's people. Now, as a historian, we refer to those times as the first great awakening. And what, was this, and what Edwards describes as a surprising work of God is simply people in New England listening to and obeying the Holy Spirit. And we refer to it as revival because it didn't just happen in one person, it didn't just happen in one family, it happened societal. Whole communities. Matter of fact, it jumps the ocean. And we'll talk about this in a, in a little bit longer, but it, it'll go back and forth on ships between the United States and England. And it becomes a historical phenomenon. How do we... How do we understand this? Uh, how do we, in a sense, follow this in this age of nuns, in this age of people walking away from God? I think in many ways, 1 Thessalonians gives us a roadmap. And to me, the first point that Paul makes, if, if we're going to take this passage, that really is a list of instructions. I think we can group it into three categories. And the first one is that the Spirit calls us to commune with one another. Let me read this, just these first couple verses again, 12 through 15. We ask you, brothers, and listen to, listen to Paul as he's telling us, I want you to form a community. I want you to form a deep community, not of shallow love, but of Jesus reflecting perfect love. So he said, we ask you, brethren, brothers and sisters, to respect those who labor among you, and are over you in the Lord and admonish you and to esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Respect those who labor. It is, it is an absolute joy to go and to speak outside of my own church because I can look all of you sort of in the eye and tell you things that I would love for someone else to come to my congregation and, and tell them. So Rich, Chris Rich did not put me up to this. He has no idea what I'm going to say. And I, I would refer to this section as me going, moving from preaching to meddling, if you're tracking with me. One of the ways where I think God would revive this congregation, create new life among you, would be if you would truly respect and honor your leadership in this church. This is counter-evangelical culture. There are words that describe how many people treat Christian leaders. They're words like ghosting. They're, words, they're phrases like leaving the church without even saying goodbye. They are, they describe in some ways, and, I'm, and I don't know many of you, so clearly if this is you, I'm not particularly picking on you. I'm not aiming directly at you. I'm aiming at, at us as evangelicals generally. But respect for leaders is not widespread Christian evangelical behavior. It is more use up leaders and then discard them. I wish that it wasn't true. But if we are going to listen and obey the Holy Spirit, we have got to take pastors from a place of, in many ways, using them and then abandoning them and replace it with holding them in high honor 
caring for them, respecting them, realizing that they are human. And I think that, I think God would honor that and would revive us. How can we possibly be a community that, is, that has sacrificial love that, that defines it if we don't show sacrificial love for the people who are leading it? It's impossible. 20, 25 years, give or take, of ministry. Most pastors make it about 10 years, brothers and sisters. The ones that make it 20, the most often way to describe them when they are done is that they've got nothing in the bank and nothing in the tank. I don't know what exactly that is, but it is not holding them in high honor. I think we can do better. Amen? Further on with communion, be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves. Be at peace among yourselves, Paul writes. Know and encourage each other. Admonish the idle. Encourage the faint-hearted. Help the weak. Be patient with them all. And love and forgive those who mistreat you. Wouldn't it be beautiful if Mercy Fellowship was a place that was at peace? And that whatever the particular need was of a particular member of the congregation, that it was met. And that, they, that everyone was specifically encouraged to trust Jesus in a, in a relevant way to their circumstance. Well, how would this revive us? I think the, you could just look at, well, Patrick. Anyone heard of Patrick of Ireland? A couple of you have, okay. I need more response from you all this morning. I know it's, it's a, all you're doing is just reflecting what you see on the stage, which is this guy with an angry resting face who's, who's not nearly as energetic as your normal preacher. But I just need, I, I feed off you. If you guys have more energy, I will have more energy, and then some of you will wake up again, and, uh, and, and we will enjoy this sermon. So hands up, St. Patrick. Am I, am I connecting? Okay. So my son goes to preschool in Pullman. And he is, every day he comes back, I ask him the same question, what did you learn today? And if he says nothing, I would say, look, we're paying 700 a month for this. What do you mean nothing? Give me 700 bucks worth of information. And so, you know, he says, you know, Dad, we learned about leprechauns. And I'm like, ah. Oh. What do you mean leprechauns? Well, it's St. Patrick's Day. And I'm like, ah, oh. you know why? St. Patrick went to Ireland, son? What, Dad? To teach people that leprechauns aren't, don't exist. That's why. And so, um, sorry, <laughs> historian rant. But I just, I'm like, oh, I can't believe it. So we went to the library, and we got him a book, checked out a book about what, who Patrick was. And Patrick was a slave. He was a Roman, so fourth century Roman Britain. A raiding party from Ireland picks up a bunch of young teenage and younger boys and then just takes them over to Ireland and sells them as sheep herders. And so he's working as a sheep herder, and as he's working over there as a sheep herder, he discovers God. God speaks to him. He goes from a place of not being devoted to Jesus to a place of extreme devotion to Jesus during his enslavement. And then God calls him one night as a, as a sheep herder. He says, now I want you to go home. Just go to the shore. There's a ship waiting for you. So he goes to the shore. A ship is there. And he eventually, he, he gets on that ship and he eventually makes it back home. 30 years later, so he's in his late 40s. Patrick gets another vision from God, and this is 
God's sending him back to his captors. And so Patrick assembles a team of people, large team of people, really a whole monastic community. And they show up in Ireland, and they set up a shelter, and they set up a, a house, and they bring in all sorts of food and medicine and sets up in the middle of town, and they simply invite the community to come in and have meals with them. And what they see in Patrick's community is that Patrick's community is at peace. And Patrick's community cares for each other. And Patrick's community adopts people from the community that are on the run from like an abusive husband or abusive leaders, and they welcome them in, and they give them a, a meal and a place to stay, and they show them through their community what love looks like. And what happens in Ireland? Well, the whole, com the whole island is converted. Ireland becomes one of the centers not only of Christianity, but really of civilization. And if you believe Thomas Cahill, they actually saved civilization during the, the age of the Vikings. But, it's, but the most important thing to know is that the whole island revives. And it is the one place in church history where there is not significant persecution of the Christians when they begin, when they begin to gain steam, when they begin to just large numbers of people convert. Because the community loves each other and displays that to the outside community as they adopt and welcome people inside. Wouldn't it be beautiful if Mercy Church became a place where when people came in, they could see, wow, they treat leaders differently here. They treat each other differently here. They display love, sacrificial love. In some ways, they reflect the perfect love of God. And they even love their enemies. Point two, the Spirit calls us to commune with him. Amazing instructions here. Paul tells the church in Thessalonica to rejoice always, to pray without ceasing, Give thanks in all circumstances, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus for you. Then this crazy instruction, do not quench the Spirit. I honestly ask myself this, this week, is that even possible? And the Holy Spirit is, a, is often shown as a fire. Paul's saying, don't take a bucket and... Quench that. Don't, dis don't despise prophecies, but test everything. Hold fast to what is good. Abstain from every form of evil. So the Spirit calls us to commune with Him, not only commune with each other in a beautiful way, but to commune with, with God. He First of all, He just says rejoice. Have you seen a a father welcome a wayward son home. You know, I'm a parent of three adult children now. And so God has given me the, the privilege, sorrow, rejoicing to be on both sides of the prodigal son story. I've experienced what it looks like for me to be the rebel child that walks away from the faith and then comes home. And I've seen it in my own kids. And I would say without too much hesitation that the most beautiful thing I have ever experienced is for one of my children to come home after I thought they, they might be dead. Just that welcome home, that just after experiencing the fear of not knowing where they are and thinking, just imagining the worst and then getting to welcome them home and see them repent and apologize and change. If you have, if you have wandered away 
and then come back to your Heavenly Father. That is exactly how He feels about you. That ought to give us an ability to rejoice. Because we were lost, and now we're found. Paul just wants us to remember that. Rejoice in that. God's love is actually invincible now. Once you've asked for forgiveness, once you've received his love, that, that love, because that's initiated by God, and because that was completed by God, we cannot walk away from that. That love is invincible. We ought to rejoice in that. You know how fragile friendships are, right? You know how fragile relationships inside a family are. Not like that with God. He loves you completely, has saved you completely, and you cannot jump out of his hand. I mean, think about parents, think about, you know, when the when the two-year-old lets go of you in a dangerous place. It doesn't matter because you have them with a grip that you're not letting them go. They can let go of their hand all they want. They can go completely limp in your arms. doesn't matter. You're mine. Rejoice in that, brothers and sisters. That's where God has you. Paul says, pray without ceasing. Don't, don't stop talking to, to God. Give thanks regularly. And he says, don't quench the spirit. And I, this is a, a difficult little phrase, but... Think about Paul. Think about the author of this. Do you remember when he went out on his first missionary journey? Acts chapter 13. How Luke describes this. Because I think Paul is just simply referring back to that time. So the instructions again, let me just read it for you, is do not quench the spirit, don't despise prophecies, but test everything, hold fast to what is good, and then abstain from every form of evil. Acts chapter 13. This is Luke writing. Now that we're in the church of Antioch, prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, Lucius, Mananean, and Saul, while they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and sent them off. So what did they do? They, they didn't quench the Holy Spirit. They listened to him, and then they tested it, or they, they kept praying and listening, and they said, yes, we heard him clearly. Now we're going to go do what he said as they commune with their Heavenly Father. Communing with the Heavenly Father with your heavenly Father, listening to the Spirit as He sends you directly leads to revival. As we listen and then, what's that second word? Obey. Paul left everything he had uh, in Antioch and went off with Barnabas. The team gradually grows. You have people like Priscilla and Aquila man and woman team, you have Junia and Ananiacus, you eventually have Timothy and Titus, and eventually 90 people join this team, but what you see around the Mediterranean is in place after place after place, whole cities of people repent, and they themselves begin to listen and obey the Holy Spirit, and there's church after church planted to the to the to eventually you have Roman governors saying the whole world is on fire. Who are these people? Roman emperors eventually try and kick every Christian out of Rome because they are scared of how fast this fire is going. Revival. The Spirit also calls us to complete dedication, reflecting his dedication to us. 
verse 23 of, of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely. And may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers and sisters, are, are we aware of how we are completely unable to be who God has called us to be on our own? Some of you in your 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s are just aware that you, you want to be a much more faithful Christian than you are. The beautiful thing about our dedication is that it is more than matched by God's dedication. He is fully dedicated to us. He has actually promised us that the work that he started in us, he is going to finish. And our response, to the, our response to that should be, okay, God, whatever I have, it's yours. Everything, whatever I have, it's yours. My favorite example of this in relation to, re to revival is George Whitfield. Anybody? We did the Patrick. Anybody George Whitfield? I see one, two, there's a half dozen hands. Old squinty eye is what they called him. Because one of his eyes went this way and one of his eyes went this way. He was also the most dynamic preacher probably ever to walk the earth. Just based on response. So the revival of the 1730s that, we heard, that I referenced earlier with, with Jonathan Edwards hit both sides of the Atlantic, and one of them was a 20-year-old, penniless Englishman named George Whitfield. Post-conversion, he describes, he says, Scripture came alive to me. Some of you absolutely are not motivated to read your Bibles. It is like reading just someone else's mail. It's like, it's just dull. It doesn't have enough pictures or illustrations. You've read it before. Yeah, okay. Yawn. I read my verse of the day just because I feel convicted that I probably should. But it doesn't come alive to you. When God revives you, this document reveals itself to what it is, which is life, bread, essence, George says this, he says, I, I submitted to Jesus and all of a sudden the Bible came alive. And my prayers, God's, I could not stop my time in prayer. And then he joins the Holy Club. Can you imagine being part of a club called the Holy Club? How pretentious is that? It was, in, it was at Oxford. And then he led the Holy Club. So he goes from not interested in faith to going completely over the top. Then he begins to, to speak about his faith, and, and people respond to him at first with sneers and jeers to then gradual respect for this 21-year-old. He becomes ordained. He starts preaching in, in public settings, so not just on the university campus, but in public settings, and eventually he becomes so popular that he is asked to preach five times a week. Sometimes he walks 12 miles to get to, to a spot, but he has absolutely unbounded popularity. But someone asks him, his friend John, uh, last name Wesley, invites him to come to Georgia. Georgia at this time is the frontier in America, and all everybody hears in England is that Georgia is completely unconverted, full of young men who are full of <laughs> frivolity and mirth and frolicking and addicted to night walking. And so he says, sure, God, I will go. And his fiancee says, what about me? And he says, are you coming? And she says, not going to Georgia. And he says, well, God's called me. He leaves. But he doesn't go directly there. He gets on a boat, and this boat is going to Gibraltar. Now, Gibraltar's south. 
He's supposed to be heading west. But on this boat to Gibraltar, let me describe how they describe this ship. In every spare moment, there is cards, back when cards was really bad, even, even worse than Domino's, uh, cards and cursing and swearing. George Whitfield gets on this boat with cards and people talking like sailors, and he gives away food and he gives away medicine, and on his first day on the boat, he is committed to do one thing. He said, all I'm gonna do is talk about Jesus Christ and him crucified, nothing else. Devotion. Day four, he starts a catechism class, which is just a question and answer way of, of training children how to, what, the, what the essentials of the faith is. He starts off that catechism class with six or seven soldiers that were believers. Day 11, there are 20 sailors and soldiers part of it. Week three, he starts an exposition on the Lord's Prayer. He talks to a couple people. The next week, he proceeds to move to preaching uh, to whoever would listen to him, daily prayers in the morning and the evening, and then he would personally visit sailors. And this is what he would talk to sailors about. He, was, he would talk to sailors about righteousness. Believe it or not, temperance, which means limiting alcohol intake. And about the judgment to come. He steadily gains goodwill on board. He starts a daily catechism class for women, and then adds a women's Bible study. The assistant that he brought along with him starts a children's ministry, and then he arranges a talk for the captain and the officers. Once he's converted the captain and the officers, uh, he then proceeds to make a choir out of soldiers on board, and soldiers in this day, went every place they went, they sang as they marched, so they're perfect for a choir. He forms a choir. Seven weeks into this ship ride, they land in Gibraltar. And what was shocking for the people in Gibraltar was that this ship made regular stops in Gibraltar, and usually what they encountered when these soldiers and sailors came off this boat was cards, cursing, swearing, abuse, uh, drink till you pass out drunkenness, and they are shocked because these soldiers get off the boat and they sit at the dock and they read their Bibles and then they stand up as a group reciting catechism like a Sunday school class and every, whatever they're doing in the morning and the evening, they stop what they're doing, go back to the ship and, and do their morning and evening prayers. And, if, and it's, what's amazing to Whitfield is as, he, as people begin to come back on, on board the boat to leave to go to Georgia, uh, many of these sailors bring him presents and with tears in their eyes say, thank you for telling us about Jesus. My life has been completely overturned. Revival. Simply a call by the Holy Spirit to listen and obey to your heavenly Father that loves you and wants the absolute best for you. He gets to the colonies. I'll just finish this with, with Whitfield and I'll just talk about some implications for us and be done. But Whitfield gets to the colonies and, uh, and he starts speaking to crowds of thousands. You have this brand new innovation called newspapers in Whitfield advertising newspapers. So he shows up in a city and there's thousands of people that want to hear this guy who is so famous on the other side of the pond. He comes to Philadelphia and uh, the, the funny person we have reporting on this is a guy named Benjamin Franklin. And Benjamin Franklin decides to go to hear Whitfield, not because he's interested in Jesus, but because he's interested in the spectacle. And so he decides, I'm going to see how far back I can hear George Whitfield speak. This is an age before microphones. It's even an age before sounding boards that they used. But he is such an absolute freak of nature that Benjamin Franklin figures out that he can hear George Whitfield preaching clearly five blocks away. 
And then he counts the crowd, and he figures out there's 20,000 people listening to George Whitfield. And his friend had warned him. He said, go ahead and hear Whitfield speak, but don't bring any money. And Ben says, why? He says, well, he's going to make some appeal at the end for money. Well, he gets through counting the crowd and figuring out how far away he can hear George Whitfield. And then he starts asking all, of, all the people he knows in the crowd if he can borrow money. And the reason is, is because George Whitfield is, is t- one of his implications for this talk is saying there, there are orphans all over America because of the recently concluded Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War, and we need to, to care for these orphans. And so Benjamin Franklin is just begging money so he can go and give. And the colonies turn upside down. This little group of, of dissenters called Baptists before Whitfield, there's 30 churches in Massachusetts. After Whitfield, there's 300. It happens in the South. I think one of the reasons that there's so much faith in the South, even to this day, starts with Whitfield. But it's just as remarkable and unremarkable as the fact that, these, that George is asking people to listen and to obey the Holy Spirit. So implications, uh, brothers and sisters, how's it going for you? How is life in a very secular context going for you? Do you feel close to your Heavenly Father this morning? Are you receptive to the Holy Spirit Do you, do you fear God? Are you aware that if you perished tomorrow, and you, without a relationship between you and your Heavenly Father, that you would spend an eternity in judgment? Are you aware of the brevity of life? Are you aware of the purposelessness of life without a relationship with God? Twenty-four years ago, it just hit me. (laughs) It didn't hurt that my youth pastor was reminding me of it weekly. But I just realized I wasn't killing it. The Bible was dull to me. The prayer, my prayers that were occasionally, you know, when dad asked me before meals, hey, son, would you pray? You know, my, my 30-second prayers, they were, they felt like they hit the ceiling. I felt like I was talking to myself. And I was feeling, there, I mean, there's a huge hole in my heart, just like there's a huge hole in every single one of our hearts without God. I was trying to fill it with pursuit of pleasure and pursuit of my own accomplishments, as best as a teenager can understand. My, te- my youth pastor looked me in the eye, though, said, you are wasting your life. And I didn't want to listen to it, but he was right. Without God, we waste our time on earth with our pursuits and with our pursuit of pleasure, our pursuit of safety or power or, or popularity, whatever, whatever it is. Without God, it is Vanity. It's pleasurable for a moment, and then it just fades. It rusts, it breaks, it's gone. And one of those, responding to him, one of those, one of those mornings, I just finally stopped running away from God and just submitted and said, okay, I receive your, this gift you're offering, this adoption that you're offering to me. And I don't know how to explain it to you, but, but when I submitted, when I just said, okay, God, I, I receive what you're offering me, God's love surrounded me like a warm blanket. And purposelessness became purpose. And that hole that I was trying to fill with every single one of my pursuits or pleasures was all of a sudden filled with just a relationship with my Heavenly Father. And so this morning, to, to follow up this, this short historical expose on revivals, I would just like to invite you to listen and obey the Holy Spirit in one of two ways. The first way would simply be 
for you to receive God's love. In a group this big, I know there are people here who have never received God's love. And just like the people in Ireland, just like the people in ancient Rome, just like the people of New England or Georgia, the people of Marysville and the surrounding areas also need to repent and receive God's love. So I'm going to invite you to do that today. And secondly, all of us regularly, weekly, daily, need to remember how much God loves us and what he's calling us to do. And we need to return to God. We need to repent of the idols that we follow and that we try to fill that hole, that God-sized hole in our heart with. And I'm going to invite all of you who have already accepted God's love to return to it and to just visually and mentally, but most certainly devotedly, return to our first love to God. So I'm going to finish in prayer and finish with, a, with an invitation. Would you bow your heads with me? As a messenger of God, I invite all of you this morning to turn from idols, and to turn from created things that you have elevated, and instead serve the living and true God. I know that right now the Holy Spirit is drawing some of you to respond. And if you haven't ever if you haven't ever received the love of God, I encourage you just right where you're sitting, quietly pray. Tell God that you repent, that you turn. And maybe you say something like, Father in heaven, I turn from serving myself. I turn from pursuing pleasure, power, popularity, safety, security, and created things. I turn to you, God. I accept the free gift of salvation. Revive me, Lord. And brothers and sisters, following Jesus is a public act. And so this morning, if, if you have been inspired to listen and to obey the Holy Spirit for the first time in your life, and you've prayed just that, a prayer like that this morning that just sounds like, God, I, I receive your love, I invite the Holy Spirit into my heart. I want to submit to you. Uh, perhaps you could just indicate that this morning just by raising your hand. Saying, I have, I have prayed that prayer for the first time. And as my brothers and sisters are just bowing their heads, you just want to say, God, I, I receive that. I want God to revive me. And I'm just going to wait a minute. I see that hand. Thank you. I see that hand, thank you. I see that hand, thank you. May God give each of you who have just indicated that just the peace knowing that that is a sincere cry of your heart that God's, God has adopted you into his family and you are secure in his love and we rejoice with you. And perhaps there's some of you who are who have been far away from God. You have wandered away. You follow the things of this world that are, that are in and of themselves empty. Brothers and sisters, today is a great day to come back to your first love. So maybe your prayer today, for those of you who are just feeling this weight of sin, and, and you're just thinking, man, I haven't been listening to the Holy Spirit. I most certainly haven't been obeying him with dedication and devotion. Maybe the prayer for you this morning sounds something like this. Father in heaven, I turn from serving, serving myself. I turn from pursuing pleasure, power, popularity, safety, security, and created things, and I now turn to you and I accept this free gift of forgiveness. Revive me, Lord. And if that is the sincere prayer of your heart, repenting is a, is a public act. I would love for you this morning 
just to indicate, yeah, that's how God's been working in my heart, just by raising your hand. Those of you who just feel like, man, I have been far from God, and I want to come back, and I want to listen, and I want to obey. I see that hand. Anyone else this morning, you, just, you feel conviction by the Holy Spirit that you haven't been listening, and you haven't been obeying, and you, want to, you just want to ask again, God, please forgive me. I see that hand. Thank you. Brothers and sisters, if that's the cry of your heart, just know that God completely and utterly forgives you. Not because of anything that you could do, but because of what Jesus has done for you. I'm now closing prayer. Our Father in heaven, you are deserving of our best. Often we just give you lip service. On our worst days, we deliberately walk away. Today, we we repent of our sin and once again offer our worship. Thank you for Jesus who took our sin, who takes our shame, our judgment, and gives us in exchange adoption and complete cleansing of sin. His righteousness and also gives us an inheritance beyond imagination. Father, help us to hear and heed your invitation. Help us follow right behind Jesus. Help us listen to the Holy Spirit. Revive us. Amen.